podcast you didn't know you needed where we talk history through pope colored glasses and some of the craziest most popular stories you've never heard of with special guests pius the 12th it's a real joy for us to welcome you all here john paul the second i would like to invite each of you to listen do not be afraid and jesus christ Sir, we don't have any recordings of Jesus Christ. What? But I saw him in those movies. No, sir, those were actors. And actors playing Jesus Christ. So grab some Eggs Benedict and your buddy Gregory because... P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona Eis This is a popular, popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History Through Pope-Colored Glasses My name is Greg, and this is episode 0.1, Genesis. As a reminder, this is the start of a Catholic world-building series, where we'll be building the Pope-Colored Glasses we'll be using to look at history in the main show. This episode, as the title suggests, is a walk through the book of Genesis, those stories from the creation accounts through the age of the patriarchs. Speaking chronologically, it makes sense to start here, in the first book of the Christian holy texts, a.k.a. the scriptures. But in our context of Catholic worldbuilding, we want to engage with those stories as a generic Catholic would, and that means we'll first want to go over the Catholic understanding of the main character of scripture, God. And again, we're looking at God through a Catholic-slash-Christian lens here, which is not how Genesis or any of the texts we'll be looking at for the next while would have been originally understood. So, fair warning on that. To get a really Catholic flavor right off the bat, let's go first to God, as present in the Holy Eucharist. You see, according to Catholic teaching, at their religious service called the Mass, bread and wine central to the service actually become God, though they still look like bread and wine. To add another layer, the bread and wine specifically become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, who is one of the three, and this is the specific technical term, persons of the Trinity, that triple collection of divine persons that together make up one God. In the context of the Trinity, Jesus is known as the Son. Jesus Christ, according to Catholic teaching, is simultaneously both truly God and truly human, a connection called the hypostatic union. As an aside, I couldn't resist offering a visual supplement to this tidbit, so if you go to our Facebook page or Twitter feed at popular history, that's popular with an E, you'll see I've uploaded an icon, a specific kind of religious image mainly used in Eastern Christianity, known as Christ Pentocrator, specifically the oldest existing, that is, 6th century, version of that Christ Pentocrator style from St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. It's a fairly famous image. In it, Christ's facial expression is strikingly split, suggesting, by most interpretations, the dual nature of Christ as both divine and human. The other two persons of the Trinity are God the Father, often depicted as an old man with a beard, though it's worth noting that God has no gender, and the Holy Spirit, often depicted as a dove. The three persons of the Trinity are all God, 
and are also not one another. So, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the God part is often left off, are each distinct in their personhood, but they are all God, and all of them have all the characteristics of the Christian understanding of God, that is, they're all-powerful, all-knowing, not created, all-good, etc. If you're scratching your head, you're not alone. The specifics of how the Trinity works are described as a mystery, in the sense that they're something that's beyond our ability to understand. The same goes for the Eucharist and the hypostatic union. When it comes to mysteries in this conversation, the basic idea is that the human mind isn't capable of understanding the entirety of the thing, because God is bigger than us. Mysteries are, in a sense, beyond us, so we can't grasp them in their entirety. We can say some things about them, and indeed the Catholic Church certainly does say certain things about these mysteries, as we're now exploring, but at the end of the day, our understanding will always be incomplete. They are beyond human comprehension. That's not to say we shouldn't try to understand these things as much as we can, I mean, we should, but it is to say that if we eventually conclude that we understand these mysteries perfectly, we can expect pushback from the church. Because these mysteries are understood to be such that again, say it with me, they are beyond human comprehension. For what it's worth, I'm not asking you to accept that view of unknowable mysteries, or really any particular view, as a prerequisite for following along on this podcast. I'm just explaining what the church teaches, since church teaching taken as a whole will help provide context for our future discussions. When you think about it, at least when I think about it, there doesn't seem to be anything particularly radical about the notion that some things are beyond human understanding. I think it'd be more radical to suggest that there's nothing beyond human understanding. Of course, the issue might be more that the church specifically and confidently defines certain specific topics as being beyond human understanding. At the end of the day, yes, the Catholic Church is specific and confident about a number of things. It might be an annoying habit, but in reality it's helpful in certain situations. Like, to pick a random example, when you're trying to make a podcast summarizing Catholicism and don't want to keep saying some Catholics believe and maybe and depending on who you ask all the time. Of course, there is still a fair bit of that debate back and forth that goes on, but all that's generally more into the weeds than we're going to get. Now let's pull back a bit and recap. For Catholic Christians, God is three divine persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in one. The Son, also known as Jesus Christ, is both fully divine, that is fully God, and fully human through something called the hypostatic union. And for added Catholic flair, we also talked about how at Mass, the bread and wine actually become Jesus Christ's body and blood through a miracle known as the Eucharist, even though they still look like bread and wine. Now that we've got our framework on the nature of God within Catholicism, let's introduce some other characters, specifically biblical characters. That is, characters from the Jewish and later Christian holy writings known as the Bible. And to do that, let's bring in time itself. Let's talk about the creation of the universe. Right from the beginning, scripture, which by the way, is just another word for the Bible, has lots of opportunities for different exegesis, exegesis being a $2 word for taking meaning from the Bible. And there are lots of ways to take meaning from the Bible. All Christians do see the Bible as the Word of God. They differ on how exactly it is the inspired Word of God and how it should be interpreted, ranging from 
what I would call fundamentalist interpretations, saying that it's all literally true and that we shouldn't read any of it allegorically. For example, when it says God created the world in seven days, that means God created the world in seven days. And if you add up the lifespans of all those that lived in Bible times, which they're there, you can do the math, it comes up with a number that's far smaller than, for example, what a scientist will tell you. In those interpretations, the Bible is right, the scientist is wrong. There's also those who think that these things should be seen allegorically when they conflict with other evidence. That, you know, God inspired it, but he wasn't meant to be doing science. Put a pin in that, and we'll circle back towards the end of this episode. In any event, there are actually two stories of creation in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And yes, the Bible is a book made up of books. Bookception, as it were. And it doesn't help that the two stories are pretty much contained in the first two chapters of Genesis, but annoyingly aren't conveniently divided into chapter 1 equals story 1 and chapter 2 equals story 2. No, the first creation account bleeds into chapter 2, and the second creation account bleeds into chapter 3. You don't really need to know that, but frankly, you don't really need to know anything I'm going to tell you on this podcast, and here I am telling you anyways, and there you are, hopefully listening well enough to have a chuckle on cue. Anyways, I bring up the division of chapters to smoothly, and in an absolutely not at all forced way, to summarize that yes, the Bible is divided into books, which are subdivided into chapters, which are, in turn, subdivided into verses. If you hear the name of a Bible book, followed by two numbers, those are the chapter and the verse. I'll also mention again that we are currently in the First Testament, aka the Tanakh, aka the Old Testament, which is basically Christian for the Hebrew Bible, to distinguish it from the New Testament, which are later specifically Christian writings about Jesus and early Christianity. I might as well also mention that the first four books of the New Testament are known as the Gospels, though frankly I'm getting way ahead of myself now. Clear? No? Good. Because frankly, neither are Genesis 1 and 2 in the sense that if we were hoping that the two creation accounts at least didn't, say, contradict one another, well, I have bad news, because they totally do. The Book of Genesis Generally, Christians accept that it doesn't matter so much whether plants came first, as they do in Genesis 1, or humans came first, as they do in Genesis 2. What matters is the meaning of the story being told. I feel like I should qualify here, given that strict, literal interpretations of Genesis are actually fairly common among Christians. I'll give my half-hearted qualification that strict little interpretation of Genesis is less common among Catholics than, say, evangelical Protestants. I could proceed to go down a whole rabbit hole about the relationship between faith and reason and the spectrum of views on evolutionary theory present within Catholicism, including the parameters laid out in Humani Generis by Pope Pius XII, but then we definitely never get anywhere with the podcast. Plus, as I'm sure you've already noticed, I definitely hate going down rabbit holes and would never consider doing such a thing. Now, where was I? Right, two creation accounts. Account 1 gives us the classic seven days. Account 2 is more focused on the creation of humans, male and female. Though if you want to know a cool secret, it's actually not as controversial as you might think to suggest that it's not clearly established that man came first and that therefore, to paraphrase Aristotle, a woman is a misbegotten man. No less a Catholic authority than Pope St. John Paul II reflected on how the differences in the sexes don't make sense in isolation. Rather, they only really make sense in the light of one another. But that's a whole other digression, and I need to tell you about the seven days of creation. 
Actually, no, I don't. What I do need to tell you is that the creation accounts are fairly short and that you should look them up if you're interested in exactly how it goes down. I'm not even going to recommend a specific Bible translation because that can lead to some heated discussions I'd like to stay out of. We're going to be hopping around with different Bible translations in the show, and I know you guys are just going to love that. We're going to be hopping around with different Bible translations in the show, and I know you guys are just going to love that. By the way, if you'd like to read a Bible verse, go ahead and email me at popularhistory at gmail.com. Again, that's popular with an E. I've got a number of lecture spots, since we're going to be reading a number of verses. It'll be fun. In any case, specific Bible translations can lead to heated discussions that I'd like to stay out of. On the topic of heated discussions, I'd like to take the opportunity to warn that I'm not going to be particularly reverent to my upcoming treatment of a large collection of oft-beloved figures that have a special place in the stories of not just Christianity, but also Judaism, Islam, and really a whole series of other religions and cultures. The central figures of the Old Testament are big names across multiple traditions, and I'm not going to be giving any of them their due. That said, I'll try to stay on the right side of the line between being entertaining and being needlessly offensive. If I fail in that, do let me know. Also, while I'm cautioning about things, please note that though I'm making a conscious effort to avoid profanity, that just because it's in the Bible does not mean it's safe for children. I'm going to try and give a heads up on the rougher episodes and sections of this podcast so that you can use your discretion if you've got younger listeners around or would just rather not hear that stuff yourself. As we go through the rest of this episode, rape, murder, and yes, circumcision are all going to come up on multiple occasions because, well, that's Genesis for you. Okay, so to get back to at least half-heartedly resisting the urge to go down every possible tangent and rabbit hole, the Cliff's Notes version of the first creation account is that God made stuff for six days and then rested on the seventh day which was then established as a day of rest, or Sabbath. Shabbat, if you're into more accurate pronunciation, though I'm still not close, I guarantee it. And the idea of a day of rest, or rather, the day of rest, has ported into Christianity as the Lord's Day, a.k.a. Sunday. Unless you're a Seventh-day Adventist, but did I mention that I'm obsessively focused on Catholics here in order to keep us from going down rabbit holes? How's that going? Not good? Okay. Seven days. Gender complementarity. Oh, Adam and Eve. First two people. Eve is made from Adam's rib. Though most Catholics agree, that doesn't mean women are lesser. Of course, if you do want to make a case for misogyny, you could do worse than to bring up another story from the Garden of Eden. Did I mention we're in the Garden of Eden? No? Well, we're in the Garden of Eden, by the way. In the creation story, that is. At least in the zoomed-in-on-humans part of it, that is. And it's a nice place. An earthly paradise, if you will. No one's dying. Everyone's vegetarian. That sort of thing. But, What's that? A snake? Yep, a snake that's understood by Christians to be the devil, telling Eve to do the one thing God told them not to do, to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Which was maybe an apple, but probably a pomegranate. Or something. Let's go with an edible fruit metaphor. Whatever it was, Eve was on it like any person suddenly being tempted to do a thing as soon as they are told not to do it. Frankly, I'm not sure the serpent was necessary. And before you can say sin, which doesn't take that long to say, but before you can say sin, she's convincing Adam to try some forbidden fruit as well. And suddenly, they go from naked and yet blissfully unaware to naked and in need of some clothes, which they proceed to make. Then... 
in perhaps the least surprising turn of events ever, God, the all-knowing, finds out. Bad news for all. Adam and Eve are cast out. The serpent, Satan, gets punished as well. And welcome one and all to the fallen world we all know and love. Catholic teaching specifies that we all inherit something called original sin from this event. It's why babies too need it baptized in the Catholic tradition, even though that same tradition holds that babies are too young to personally sin. We'll be going into original sin, also known as the sin of Adam, which is an odd turn or phrase since it's more often pinned on Eve when it's pinned on anyone. Anyways, we'll be going into more detail on that in time because believe me, it comes up. Okay, so sin, bad. As punishment, Adam and Eve are evicted from Eden, and more specifically, they are now mortal, which apparently wasn't a thing before. But they aren't the first to die. Nope, that honor goes to Abel, their son. Killed by his big brother Cain due to jealousy and something about God's dietary preferences or whatever. Key concepts here. Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's kids. Cain kills Abel. Cain is exiled, and the family carries on through Seth, son number three. Not a key concept here is thinking too deeply about when exiled Cain moves in with another group and marries into that group. Where did that lot come from? Are they other offspring of Adam and Eve? I don't know. Why did I know? Because not a key concept, that's why. More of a key concept, skip a few generations, is Enoch, who, quote, walked with God, and he was no more, for God took him away, end quote. This is the first death since Abel's murder if it can be called a death. It's certainly something. I don't pretend to have special insight into what that verse meant to the first few generations reading or hearing the story, but since God took him away was eventually interpreted by Christians, and also as I understand it by some late 2nd century Jews, to mean God took him into heaven, this is as good a time as any to talk about Christian views of the afterlife, or more specifically, Catholic views of the afterlife, because papacy. In terms of final destination, Catholics see two options, heaven and hell. Heaven is good, all kinds of good. Hell is bad, all kinds of bad. And since Christians believe you have a form of consciousness called a soul that carries on forever after you die, you're actually going to spend a lot more time in the afterlife than you are, well, living. As in, infinity more time. So, the name of the game in Christian morality is going to the good one, heaven, and avoiding the bad one, hell. In that context, looks like Enoch was a good boy. A very good boy, in fact, since he got to go to heaven well before heaven's pearly gates opened for general admission. More on that in a future episode. If you want some fun trivia, the original recording of this episode actually said more on that in the next episode, which, well, we're, I think, 10 episodes beyond this episode now, and we still ain't there. So, eh, it is what it is. Moving on, then, there's Enoch's son, Methuselah, another direct ancestor for all of humanity by biblical reckoning, most famous for living most long, like 969 years. In fact, a lot like 969 years, as in, yes, 969 years. And I should say, like less. For what it's worth, that age doesn't stick out as much as you might expect, since Genesis paints the early generations as rather long-lived. For instance, Adam who was specifically punished with mortality on account of his sin, lived to be a mere 930. Skipping Methuselah's son, Lamech, because who cares, you might have heard of Methuselah's grandson, Enoch's great-grandson, 
Noah. Yes, that Noah, if the name sounds familiar. Turns out, God isn't happy with all the sinning, which has apparently gotten worse through the generations. So God decides to do away with all of humanity except Noah and his family, which is why the whole direct ancestor of all humanity thing keeps popping up. Well, that and because some repetition helps tie together long narrative jogs. So anyways, God tips off Noah about our plans and tells him to build a big old boat, called an ark, because we can't use perfectly good and sensible words like boat since this is Bible speak. This boat will keep Noah and his family alive and, by the way, will also house two of every animal species, one male and one female, and for what it's worth, more than just one pair of several species, since those are the kind of extra juicy tidbits you'd get from listening to me rather than whatever else you'd be doing. More specifically, seven pairs of clean animals. Clean, in this context, meaning appropriate for ritual sacrifice. Which is good, because Noah totally sacrifices some of those clean animals at the end of all this. What's all this? Rain. Lots of rain. Specifically, 40 days of rain. Which is apparently somehow enough rain to cover the whole world, mountains and all, in water. Which was potentially bad news for Grandpa Methuselah, who it's worth noting died in the year of this great big flood. Eventually, the rain stops and things are literally sunshine and rainbows for a while. Everyone comes out of the ark and repopulates the earth and things move on. Okay, so the flood thing pretty much covers the essential parts of Noah from a Catholic perspective. I mean, yeah, he later tries out wine for the first time in human history, which results in his kids checking out his junk while he's passed out. But I don't think we needed to get into that. Oops. Oh, and he actually gets a reference in the first church council. So, double oops, but we'll have to wait until a later episode for that. So what's another good Genesis story I should mention? Oh, how about the Tower of Babel? Humans get cocky. They decide to build a tower to heaven. God decides that they need to be brought down a peg or two. Boom. Language barriers. There. That's the Tower of Babel. Okay, so other stuff happens. No offense, but whatever. I'm moving along. Flipping pages sounds. Ah, Abraham. Important. Let's talk Abraham. A lot. And lot. A little. And actually, let's talk Abram. Not Abraham, because... This is our first time dealing with a surprisingly common biblical trope. Name changes. Abram means, checks notes, uh, something father. Abraham means father of many. God changed Abram's name in one of a series of direct chats he has with Abram, in which he promises Abram's descendants will have a lot of stuff, and that Abram's descendants will be numerous. Abram, now Abraham's wife, and incidentally his half-sister, Sarai, now Sarah, also got a name change because she laughs at the notion that she's going to get pregnant at her advanced age. But before long, Abraham has a son, through Hagar, Sarah's servant. Which, and you're hearing this correctly, was actually Sarah's idea as a workaround to her own apparent infertility. But, so the story goes, that wasn't what God had in mind. The promised child was to be born through Sarah. And 13 years later, it happened. A son, Isaac, was born to Sarah and Abraham when they were 91 and 100 years old, respectively. Now, a joyful exclamation for the birth of Isaac, sure. But you really have to feel for Ishmael, Abraham's older son by Hagar. Especially considering the fact that when it comes time for the next historical marker in our walking tour of the Old Testament, 
an event known as the binding of Isaac, God tells Abraham to take Isaac, quote, your son, your only one. Ouch. Like, Ishmael's standing right there, God. Actually, it turns out Ishmael is hanging out way over there, because right after Isaac was born, Sarah demanded that Ishmael and Hagar be sent away, which Abraham thought was a bit much, considering Ishmael was also his son, and that whole thing was her idea anyways, but God was like, oh yeah, let's do that because my plan totally goes through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Incidentally, Islam tends to trace its own history through Ishmael. Hmm, now you know. On to the binding of Isaac. Things really come to a head with God's whole, my plan totally goes through Isaac and not Ishmael thing here because God literally tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to him. Like, literally kill Isaac and burn him child sacrifice orders, which is obviously pretty heavy stuff. It gets as far as Abraham, with a raised knife while Isaac is still trying to figure out what animal they'll be sacrificing, before an angel steps in and keeps Abraham from following through. It turns out the whole kill your kid thing was a test of Abraham's faith. I gotta say, it's not a test I would have passed, mainly because I think the whole situation there is pretty messed up on the face of it, not least because I'd say Abraham's willingness to do what God asked of him was proven years ago when God told him to circumcise himself. And traditionally, Abraham's dealings with God is where the whole circumcision thing started. In any case, challenging or not, the binding of Isaac is a famous story from the Old Testament, and now you've hopefully got an intelligible outline of it if you didn't have one before. In case you aren't familiar with circumcision, let me give my courage up with a little, little shot of whiskey, <laughs> and explain that it's the removal of the foreskin. That is the flesh turtleneck, if you will, around the head of a penis. So look up turtleneck sweater, and you'll get the gist if you're listening at work or whatever. And now, let it never be said that I avoided explaining things that needed explained. And this one actually matters a fair bit, because foreskins and circumcision actually play a fairly major role in the remainder of the whole Bible, both Old and New First and Second Testament, and it even keeps popping up here and there in papal history. And yes, eventually, there will be an episode that covers the cult of the holy foreskin. Now, at this point, I really should circle back to yet another famous uh, snippet from the life of Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's role here is as remote support, negotiating with God who wants to destroy the cities, while Abraham, somewhat surprisingly since God's supposed to be the all-knowing and all-benevolent one here, points out to God that it's not good to kill innocent people along with bad folks. So God agrees to spare the city if 50 righteous people are found there, then Abraham talks him down, and down, all the way down to ten righteous people as the line at which point, for some reason, he stops. I'm not sure about the logic that says it's okay to kill ten bystanders, but hey, what do I know? Meanwhile in Sodom, Abraham's nephew Lot gets two mysterious male visitors who Lot invites to spend the night. During their stay, a mob forms and demands to sleep with Lot's guests. Lot refused to allow this, and uh, offered his own daughters up to be raped instead. Fortunately, and I need to apologize for getting pretty much this whole story wrong in the first go-round, Lot's guests intervene at this point, using supernatural abilities to blind the men, and then telling everyone it's time to get a move on because God's going to destroy the city. It's worth noting that though Sodom has long been synonymous with homosexuality, it's clear that that's far from the only thing going on here. And indeed, 
When the story comes up again in the book of Ezekiel later in the Bible, sodomy in that sense doesn't even get a direct mention. It's presumably covered under they did detestable things, but if you want a Bible-based definition of sodomy, you'll need to make sure it also includes things like being haughty and not helping the poor and needy, not to mention being arrogant and overfed, since those are all things that actually are listed after Ezekiel says, quote, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom, end quote. But once again, I digress. Along with his wife and daughters, two of whom will eventually, well, let's just skip that part of the story, uh, Lot evacuates before God rains down meteors or whatever to destroy the city. It actually stands to reason that we don't have a great description of the actual destruction of the cities, at least insofar as any of these stories stand to reason, given that all the evacuees were under strict orders not to look back at the destruction. Famously, Lot's wife can't help herself, and she disobeys the order. And as a result, she's turned into a pillar of salt. And yes, in honor of this story, throughout history, there are a large number of pillars, saline and otherwise, called Lot's wife. Okay, so I think I've hit Abraham's high points. We've got three more generations to go before we finish the book of Genesis. And in case you're wondering, we're less than halfway through the first of the 66 books in the Bible. Oh wait, actually, the 73 books in the Catholic Bible. If it helps, none of the other books will take anywhere near this long, he said, without the benefit of hindsight that the re-recorded Greg has. Genesis just happens to be full of particularly notable notables. Isaac, Abraham's second son, who apparently God likes a lot more than his first son, and honestly, also more than Abraham's various other sons he has by various women before he dies. Anyways, Isaac, for all his super special son status, honestly gets pretty sandwiched between his father Abraham and his son Jacob, who you might know better by his post-name change name, Israel. Yes, that Israel. After all, the two most famous events in Isaac's life are events where he isn't the main character. There's the binding of Isaac that we covered a couple minutes ago when Abraham almost sacrifices him as a test of his faith. And, well, let me try and keep things in order at least a little. So we'll talk about Isaac a bit. Okay, so Isaac. He marries a woman named Rebecca. They go on adventures that in several cases sound suspiciously like stuff Abraham and Sarah did. They didn't have kids for a long time. And then Isaac prayed and boom, kids. The end. Also, Rebecca had a nose ring. Okay, so the next generation is on the scene. Much like Isaac himself, Jacob, the chosen one, isn't actually the firstborn, despite what you might expect. But unlike the 13 years younger Isaac, it's actually a pretty darn close-run thing, since Jacob and his slightly older brother Esau are actually twins. Turns out, Isaac's prayer was super effective. Esau is the older and apparently hairier one, but let's talk about Jacob, because Jacob is the chosen one, and Esau can therefore suck an egg. Actually, Esau can suck down some stew. All it costs is his extra share of the birthright. You see, legally it mattered who the firstborn was because the firstborn got a double share in the inheritance. So Esau was in line to get twice as much as Jacob until they got Jones in for some stew. Specifically, lentil stew. And yes, there are some recipes for Jacob's lentil stew online, though I doubt any of those are authentic. And quite honestly, Given the techniques available and the hygienic understanding of the time, I really hope none of them are authentic. 
who he thinks modern immune systems are pretty pathetic. I will say that line was written before coronavirus. It got a lot darker. Sorry. In any case, if you ever feel like being super extra, feel free to describe it as going full Esau. Quote, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? End quote. Classic, hungry Esau. Must have been some good smelling stew. I said I was going to talk about Jacob rather than Esau, and then I totally didn't do that. If you're surprised, I need you to take a moment and lower your expectations for this podcast. Lower, a bit lower, almost there. Okay, good. So Jacob's just scammed Esau pretty hardcore, especially considering not only does firstborn status give you double possessions, but traditionally, the blessing of the patriarch of the family goes through the firstborn son as well. Now, it should be noted that Jacob doesn't really have that part wrapped up yet, since that needs to come through Isaac, and we're told Isaac prefers Esau. But Jacob has a card up his sleeve, since Rebekah prefers Jacob. And really, he has two cards up his sleeve, since by this time in the narrative, Isaac is old, and more importantly, blind. So Rebekah helps Jacob trick Isaac by using goat's hair to mimic Esau's hairiness. Esau is not a man of half measures, apparently being very hairy in addition to being very hungry. And can we get back to that for a minute? Because giving up his firstborn son status also apparently meant giving up his access to the patriarchal blessing, like the blessing Isaac had gotten from Abraham who had literally gotten it from God. That must have been some good smelling lentil stew. And don't think Esau ever got to live that thing down. Like, ever. His descendants came to be known as the Edomites, named after Edom, literally the term for the reddish color of the stew. Though you wouldn't know that, looking at online recipes for Jacob's lentil stew, since the first one isn't even freaking red. There's literally a whole ethnic group named after the color of the dish, and they can't even bother to get that much right? Shame. Go upvote the second recipe. At least it tries to be reddish. Alright, birthright secured, now we really can see about putting Esau to rest. There is a final almost battle between Jacob and Esau, given the whole Esau being really taken to the cleaners here thing, and him being understandably sore about it. But in the end, Esau forgives Jacob, and they embrace as brothers. Final reconciliation between the brothers aside, when it comes to their descendants, the Edomites will be showing up periodically moving forward, and let's just say, boy oh boy, are they ever going to regret that darn stew. So, with Esau now firmly set aside, we've got Jacob, and Jacob needs a wife. It turns out, local man about town, or field, local man about field, Laban, has some marriage-eligible daughters. Jacob picks one, Rachel, then works for Laban for seven years in order for the right to marry her sister, Leah. Yes, it turns out Laban did a little switcheroo behind the veil thing because Leah is the older daughter and so, by custom, needs to be married first. Which, by the way, is definitely a major plot point in Fiddler on the Roof. I'm not sure why you need to know that, in all probability you don't, but there you have it. In any case, fear not, for this is still a time before monogamy is culturally established, so no worries. The apparently very patient Jacob agrees to work another seven years in order to also marry Rachel. Then they go about having, like, a bunch of kids. All of them. Leah and Rachel basically have a kid-having contest, and Jacob is the winner. Seriously, 12 sons for Jacob. 
And when I say kid having contest, I mean it's on. Leah starts out in the lead, rattling off four kids. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. But after a personal drought, Rachel fights back using her grandmother's have kids via her servant strategy, marrying her handmaid, Bilhah, to her husband, quickly resulting in the births of Dan and Naphtali. Then, Leah decides two can play at that game and gets poor overworked Jacob to marry her handmaid, Zilpha, producing Gad and Asher. Then, Leah rattles off three more of her own, Issachar, Zebulun, and Jacob's only recorded daughter, Dinah. Fortunately, it turns out Rachel can have kids of her own, who end up being Joseph and Benjamin. Incidentally, and I'm sure this isn't at all related, Joseph and Benjamin will be the two tribes remaining after the other ten are taken over by the Assyrians, but we'll get back to that in time. It sure has nothing to do with them being allegedly the direct offspring of the favored wife of the patriarch. Now, that's a lot of names all at once, but I do have one more name for you that will hopefully help tie some threads together and make sense of all this. For you see, much like his brother Esau, not to mention his paternal grandparents, Jacob gets a name change, one that might be familiar, since unlike Edom, which faded away during the BC years way back when, Jacob's new name is still, or miraculously again, born by a modern nation, Israel. Go ahead and pause this show a minute and sing the Israeli national anthem to yourself. I don't know how the rights for that work, so I'm not going to put it in. All right, good job. I'll now note that Israel means wrestles with God, and it comes from a weird story where God, or maybe an angel, it's really not clear, decides it would be fun to take physical form and wrestle with his current favorite human, which he does. I'll also note that El is a short name for God, so names ending in El has something to do with God and their meaning. For instance, Mikhail means who is like God. The other two archangels traditionally mentioned in scripture also have El names, Gabriel and Raphael. But I digress. We'll get back to all them later. Alright, so we have the twelve sons of Israel, and eventually, well, after a bit of shuffling and substitution, eventually these form the basis for the twelve tribes of Israel that you might have heard of. And even if you hadn't heard of them before now, well, take notes, because they do come up again. But first, we should go over the best-known shenanigans of the people who gave their names to the tribes. And no story of the shenanigans of the twelve sons of Jacob, that is, the twelve sons of Israel, no such story would be complete without a fairly unhealthy focus on Joseph. Because, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, as the eldest son of Jacob's favorite wife, the woman he fell in love with when he was 77 and she was 14, try to not think about that one too much, you guessed it, Joseph is officially the chosen one. And boy, oh boy, does he ever know it. In addition to being the chosen one, Joseph enjoys wearing his famous coat of many colors, or amazing technicolor dream coat, depending on your translation. He also enjoys interpreting dreams. He especially enjoys interpreting dreams that go on about how great he is, and specifically, how much greater than his brothers he is. He does this on multiple occasions. Now, I'm not saying gathering together your siblings and describing your dreams where you and your brothers are gathering sheaves and your brother's sheaves start bowing before your sheaf, or where the sun and moon and stars, representing your father, mother, and siblings, start literally worshipping you is justification for murder, but apparently 10 out of 11 siblings agree that it is. 
since only Reuben voted against the plan of straight-up murdering Joseph. And apparently, Reuben can be fairly persuasive, since his suggestion, uh, tossing Joseph into a pit and leaving him there, carried the day. On the face of it, that's not a lot better than straight-up murder, but hey, we're told Reuben's plan was to go back later and literally help Joseph out. Unfortunately for Reuben's plan, and yeah, unfortunately for Joseph, while they're having a pit-side snack after tossing the original dreamer in, they see some slavers walking by, and Judah recommends another alternative to killing Joseph. Selling him into slavery. The deed is done, and to cover their tracks, they take the Technicolor and the Amazing right out of Joseph's dream coat by tearing it and bloodying it with goat's blood. Now apparently, Ruse is based on goat viscera run in the family, since, keep in mind, this is the second generation running to have a goat-based deception. Really, Jacob should have seen this coming, and by the way, I'm going to keep calling the patriarch Jacob, rather than his post-wrestling name Israel, to avoid confusion with the nation-state. In any case, Jacob buys the ruse, goat blood and all, and the slavers buy Joseph. Joseph ends up in Egypt as the slave of a certain Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. Actually, I shouldn't say ends up, since according to the story, before long Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, but he refuses, so she makes a false rape claim. And before you can say virtually all rape claims outside literature hold up so I tend to believe women by default, where Joseph actually ends up is prison. While in prison, Joseph goes back to his old pastime of dream interpretation, since that worked so well for him before. Dripping the ironic tone notwithstanding, this time it actually does work out well for him, eventually. He ends up hanging out with Pharaoh's baker, and also his cupbearer. Through interpreting their dreams, he accurately predicts that the baker's doomed to execution, but the cupbearer will be restored. In very relatable fashion, the cupbearer forgets that Joseph had asked for a favorable recommendation in return for his dream interpreting services until two years later, when Pharaoh himself has a dream and is looking for an interpreter. Joseph succeeds, where the other interpreters failed, predicting seven years of good harvest, followed by seven years of bad harvest, which leaves Joseph recommending Pharaoh store up the excess from the good harvest to brace for the bad. Frankly, that seems like solid policy in general, but it probably is nice to have a 14-year forecast. In gratitude, Pharaoh makes Joseph his vizier, which I've got to go ahead and pretend is analogous to being prime minister. Joseph also ends up marrying a woman named Asenath and having two kids during the seven years of good harvest, namely Ephraim and Manasseh. They actually end up as two of the tribes of Israel once Jacob secures the double portion of the inheritance. And yes, that's coming up in due course. Things keep coming up, Joseph, pretty much from this point onwards. As things turn from feast to famine, things aren't coming up Egypt, but the stored up food does the trick. Surrounding nations are facing famine too, and Jacob sends all his remaining sons except Benjamin down to buy grain. Joseph recognizes them, but since it's been a number of years at this point, and he's in an elevated status with a fancy new Egyptian name, uh, Zaphnath Paneh, I think, they don't recognize him. He pretends to not speak Hebrew, accuses them of being spies, and throws them in jail for a few days. Then, after selling them some grain, he lets them go but insists that when they come back, they bring along Benjamin. He also secretly puts their money back into their coin purses, which gives them a shock when they discover it because they're worried about being accused of stealing it. Understandable, given the whole spies accusation and the prison time thing. Oh, 
and Joseph also keeps Simeon hostage. At this point, I'm really not sure how Joseph is the good guy in this story, but hey, apparently he is. I mean, in his defense, they had sold him into slavery. Anyways, the famine goes on, the grain runs out again, and Jacob sends the brothers back again. This time with Benjamin, as well as with enough money to pay for the first round of grain along with a new batch, as well as some presents like honey and almonds as a kind of apology slash goodwill offering in anticipation of another theft accusation. They're well received with a banquet and everything, but when they're sent back home, Joseph pulls some of the same stuff he'd done last time, sneaking all their money back into their bags along with the silver cup. Then he has his lackeys search for the stolen cup, which is found, as expected, in Benjamin's bag. Joseph then demands that as punishment, Benjamin be forced to stay his slave, which the brothers knew would really break Jacob's heart. After all, Benjamin had been kept from the first trip in order to stay relatively safe, and it had taken some convincing to get Jacob to allow Benjamin to go on the second trip, because last remaining son of favorite wife Rachel. So Judah volunteers to be made a slave in Benjamin's place. At this point, Joseph can't keep up the ruse. It's too emotional. He sends the Egyptians out of the room and comes clean. In the end, he invites his father Jacob and the whole household to the Egyptian province of Goshen to wait out the remaining five famine years. They come down, and the whole family is reunited at last. At this point, it's been over 20 years since Jacob had seen Joseph. They live happily for a number of years until eventually, Jacob starts nearing the end of his life. No spring chicken at 147, and bedridden to boot. Jacob's final request is that he be buried not in Egypt, but in the family's ancestral home of Canaan, where they'd lived since the time of his grandfather Abraham. When the time comes, that request is honored. But before the end, Jacob has one more thing to do, passing on his blessing, which is described in detail, more detail than I'm going to give, though there are a few things to note. First, even though he's the oldest, Reuben doesn't get the double share that would normally be his right because he'd made a major misstep way back even before the whole Joseph tossed into a pit then sold into slavery thing. And really, considering the misstep was sleeping with his stepmother, Jacob's wife Bilhah, well, it's pretty understandable that Jacob held a grudge. As you probably guessed, the double portion instead goes to golden boy Joseph, though not directly, but rather one portion each to Joseph's two children, counting Manasseh and Ephraim as though they were Jacob's own. In this, Ephraim gets a touch of extra blessing since Jacob used his right hand, while his older brother Manasseh gets the left-handed treatment. Joseph objects to this setup, but Jacob insists, basically saying Ephraim is going to prosper more. At this point, you really have to wonder whether the whole firstborn concept is itself a victim of some hardcore trolling. Then, Jacob dies. Not long after, at least in terms of the narrative, Joseph himself dies at the age of 110, but not before getting his descendants to promise to bring his bones with them when they leave Egypt. With that, we reach the end of Genesis, and the end of the age of the biblical patriarchs. Now, as a reminder, there are still lots of Genesis stories that didn't cover, such as Jacob's Ladder, because, believe it or not, despite the length and density of this episode, I really am trying to stick to the broadly relevant framework that'll come up in the main show. As lesser-known Bible stories I've skipped turn out to come up in the main show, I'll be sure to give them some context at the time. But at this point, you've officially heard the core bits of Genesis, or at least the parts that are most helpful for our world-building project. With that said, remember that pin that we put in the topic of different styles of interpreting the Bible, even though all Christians agree that it is the inspired Word of God, with the question being, 
you know, was it intended to be all literal or, or allegorical interpretations possible? Well, let's take that pin out now, because I've got not one, but two podcast recommendations for you this week if you want to know things like what Lot's daughters did that I decided to skip. First, if you're interested in a traditional take on all this, you could do worse than a 50-part audio series from Brother Mike Mazzolongo of BibleTalk.tv, and, I think he would agree more importantly, also of The Church of Christ. I want to note that his take is traditional in all the ways one might expect if that word gives you expectations, so be warned that he does things I absolutely could not endorse, like presenting Lot offering up his daughters to be raped as a virtuous act. That 50-part series is out there in podcast format, and it's called Genesis. The other podcast I'd like to recommend for a more in-depth look at Genesis, without giving the impression that I agree with all of it, though I did find all of it interesting, is the Dragons in Genesis podcast by, well, I got sucked into the show to such an extent that I didn't even register that the host had committed what I consider the cardinal sin of podcasting. Anonymity. I can't blame them. I'm sure they get plenty of hate mail. On this one, I'll note that what's presented isn't stereotypical atheist fare, though there's that too. It's more an alternative theory of everything that can possibly have an alternative theory in biblical interpretation. I found it fun and interesting to follow along with, even if I didn't always buy what he was selling. Now, if you think the atheist reinterpreting Genesis, and eventually the Bible as a whole, sounds more fun than the fundamentalist fundamentalizing, I'd nevertheless encourage you to give the one that doesn't sound like your cup of tea a go first. I'm a big proponent of challenging yourself, pushing your comfort zone. And the reverse is true as well. If you're looking forward to the comfort of traditional interpretation, I'd encourage you to challenge yourself by sampling the opposite. In any event, I'd say my approach is somewhere between the two. Whatever it is, it's what you heard, and it's what I got. Thanks, as always, to our sound technician, Billy, to our logo artist, Russ, to the ever-patient and helpful editor, Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History, and to you, the listeners. Tune in next week to hear the rest of the Old Testament getting much the same treatment, from Moses to the Maccabees. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Tune in next week for episode 0.2, Moses and Friends. Also, Pharaoh.